Now, in most of our episodes to date, we've took a single concept of complexity science and we've looked at that using an example. Now, in this episode and the next, we're going to pull back the camera and take a much more bird's eye view of complexity science. We're going to look at the features of complex systems. And to do that, we're joined again by Carolina Wiesner, Professor of Complexity Science in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Potsdam University in Germany. Now, in part one, we're going to look at the four conditions that we see in complex systems. They are numerosity, disorder and diversity, feedback and non-equilibrium. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to pull the four of those together and look at a central concept in complex systems, the concept of emergence. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems, systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Carolina, welcome back on the show. Thank you, Sean. So last time we talked a lot about robustness, and that's going to come into our conversation a little bit today. But this episode is a little bit different. This is part one of a two-part episode, and this is a primer on complex systems. We're going to go right back and sort of talk about some of the, the fundamental concepts, and we're going to do this over two episodes. And in this episode, we're going to cover what are the four conditions that we see in complex systems. And they're numerosity, disorder and diversity, feedback, and non-equilibrium. We're going to step through them with some examples. And then we're going to finish and talk about emergence, which is incredibly important for complex systems. So these four conditions, you talk about them in your book, Carolina. Just a general thoughts on where these came from when you were putting them together before we dive into each one of them? Yes. The idea behind identifying them is, uh, you know, the idea that came out in many, many discussions with my co-author, James Ladyman, is what do all of these systems have in common and which ones of these seem like they need to be there for anything interesting to arise? And you just listed them, numerosity, disorder, diversity, feedback, non-equilibrium. So let's start with numerosity. So in your book called James Ladyman, you say numerosity of interactions or parts can produce dramatic differences in behavior. So what is numerosity? Numerosity is maybe a bit of a strange word. It just means many, many things are interacting in many ways and many times. Now, how many is many is a question that is being answered by different systems in a different way, I guess. There is a, a fun example, which is an ant colony. You know, how many ants does it take for a colony to function in the way we, we see it functioning in, in the forest? And depending on the colony type, you can put a hundred of them on a plane and they will not do anything. They will just go around in circles and die. But if you put down 10,000, then suddenly things start to happen. And other systems have different thresholds, if you like, of how many is many. You know, the smallest brain we know about is, I think, 300 something neurons. And then it goes up to millions and trillions and so on in more developed brains. 
So how many is many is different for different systems. What's important though is not just how many things there are, or how many elements, but even if you have just 300 elements, the number of ways in which they can interact is exploding exponentially. And that's what is really so crucial for something interesting to happen is the interactions between the many parts. And if we go back to your ant example, which obviously we talked a lot about in, in episode three, the key thing there is you, you hit this critical number where suddenly it moves into the random behavior of a collection of ants into something much more interesting. And you say that interaction, these interaction between these agents is essentially an exchange of energy, matter, or information. Probably worthwhile pulling the three of them apart. Bearing in mind that I think for many people coming to complexity, this concept of information is always a difficult one. It is, because it's abstract. We all have a sense of information. You know, I read the news every day and I get some information. It's an abstract representation of something. So information can be the information about location. So I'm communicating a location, not by being at that location myself, but by somehow representing that in words or in numbers or in something else. So information is an abstraction. And that's the beauty of it. That's why it's so important in complex systems, because so much happens in studying them is by abstracting things away from the physics. So information can flow into a system that could be for humans, it could really be news. You know, the economy works a lot on the basis of information. You hear about certain stocks that you should sell or buy or whatnot. The same though is true for biological systems. So the immune system, you can think about it as information coming in. Of course, pathogens come in, virus comes in, but then the fact that that is entering the system is being almost abstracted within the system so that T cells are being activated based on that information, which is a biological representation, of course, in terms of cells and other particles. Ori spoke a lot about pheromones and bees. That's essentially information, I presume, as well. Yes, they're beautiful examples, ant colonies and beehives in particular, because they really do abstract, for example, information about location. They do this waggle dance where they're communicating the quality of, for example, a new nest site and the distance and the direction, so the location of that nest site. They communicate that by encoding it in this dance. So an encoding means really an abstraction and you communicate that to the other bees. Encoded in the dance, depending on how the bee is, is oriented, it means in that direction the nest site is located. So they are really abstracting the concrete physical thing into something abstract, which is a dance. And energy? How does exchange of energy work? Yes. Yeah, so a simple example in, in a physical system, it's the influx of energy. I mean, the entire earth, the entire Gaia, some people would call it the Gaia of the earth, is there because of the energy influx of the sun. And if the sun is gone, then the system is, can't sustain itself. And at the same time, there's also energy outflux because energy is being radiated back into space. So many, if not all complex systems are sustained by the influx of energy, chemical reactions. There's this beautiful dinosaur example of a complex system, which is the Belosov-Sabotinsky reaction. And what you do is you pour several chemicals together and then you heat it up 
And through both the influx of new chemicals, which would be the influx of matter, plus a supply of heat, which is an influx of energy, these chemicals react with one another and form beautiful spirals. So if you go on YouTube and you look for a video for a BZ reaction, you'll see these spirals happening. And that wouldn't be happening if you didn't have the influx of energy, that's heat, and matter, which is chemicals. And bringing this very much to complexity terms, as we'll talk about with all these conditions, it's having enough interactions, which essentially takes random behavior. Um, and these interactions are your energy or your information or your matter. And that produces a different, more complex behavior. And we're going to talk about some of those particularly at the end of this episode and then in some more as well. So number two is disorder and diversity. Tell us about those. Disorder and diversity are the behavior of a system which is somewhat random. So it means if we take the immune system where the T cells are wandering around the body and they don't have a determined path that they follow along. And then at that path, maybe they hit the pathogen and they will be activated. But instead, they clearly walk around randomly. They swim around randomly. And it's this randomness that's important because that way they will visit at some point every location. At some point, every location is important to make sure that interactions can happen, interactions with other parts of that immune system, and that way signals can be propagated. Whereas if everything was deterministic, then the immune system wouldn't be able to react to unknown things, which is what it's there for to do. Maybe a somewhat easier example is, is this ant colony, which I keep returning to because it's so visual in its randomness. And An ant is being sent out has the task of foraging and it's it will just start walking in some random direction until it hits on something, either food or a signal from another ant, which is back to information, which will guide it towards a food source. And new food sources can only be discovered if there's randomness in the system because the information about the food source is not there to begin with. It can only be created through a random exploration of the space. This is, a, I think, one of the really interesting concepts that if you have a very Newtonian worldview, that's hard to get your head around. And that is that what we're saying with complex systems is that this disorder, this randomness, as you've said in, in our previous episode, is, is a feature of the system. It's something that's beneficial. It's something that it gives it the power to adapt what it does. And, and if in the absence of that disorder, you essentially just get locked into how things work. Correct. And that's why we put disorder here as a necessary condition, not a something that we wish it wasn't there. We wish it was there. Disorder is really important for anything. I say interesting for now to arise, but certainly for structure to arise, it will be necessary. And that's fascinating. You're saying like for a structure to arise in the complex system, the disorder is actually necessary. Yes. And I guess we'll come back to other positive side effects of disorder. But this one is, it is the motor, if you like, of structure to arise. And on its own, it wouldn't be enough. Well, we had numerosity already. The next one on the list will be feedback. So the disorder only in tandem with feedback is going to lead to order. And the ant trail, again, is an example. The feedback is coming from one ant going out, finding something interesting as happenstance 
by accident. And then it leaves information, another ant finds it, and that's where the feedback starts. And this feedback is, you know, just like I believe Brian Arthur was talking about increasing returns. Initially, something random happens. Someone makes a random decision and a few more, say, people make a random decision. And that leads other people to not make a random decision, but make a decision based on that previous one. So this increasing returns phenomenon is a combination of disorder and feedback. And of course, numerosity, you need a few people to make it happen. And is it the disorder and the randomness that essentially gives us this distributed local control in the system as opposed to a, a top-down governing control of the system? I mean, I presume it's our disorder and feedback together that produce that. Yes. When you have a central control, then you want none of these other things. You don't want any disorder. You just want your controlling orders to come through to the elements and for them to just do what it says. And that's whatever it is they need to do comes back to you and you decide what's going to happen next. If you have disorder and feedback within the system, it will be essentially impossible to have a single control. So the two, I mean, to put it strongly, I'd say they exclude one another. I've never thought of it that way before, but what we're saying is in a top-down control system, as you say, you don't want disorder. But when we're looking at complex systems, they're essentially bottom-up controlled, they're distributed control, they're because of the interactions, they're locally generated, and then they produce this coherent, if you want to use that word, or organized behavior that come out the top. So it's almost like everything you think that's good management science, for example, is actually not what you find in complex systems. Yes, the good management guide is failing in complex systems. And that's, I guess, part of what makes them so surprising for us. We look at them and we think, wow, this looks really ordered. But nobody's making the order. <laughs> nobody's in control. And yet the system as a whole seems very structured, goal-oriented even. It seems not disordered, actually. It seems very ordered. And that's what makes it so surprising to look at a complex system. Before we go on to um, feedback, there's a line you talk about, what, which I find really fascinating. And you say, and this goes back to this theory that we, we here talked about, that complexity lies between order and disorder, or order and chaos. And you say, in fact, what lies between order and disorder is the structure of a complex system or the structure that is produced by the complex system. What does that mean? This idea that complex systems are between order and disorder, that somehow it puts it onto this one scale where that scale goes from disorder to order and somehow for some reason, which many people put down to actually tipping points, that's where the complex system locates itself because it, that's where it feels comfortable. That's where it feels to be robust. But when you take this apart, you realize that these are two different mechanisms at work. So they are processes. Disorder is a process and order is a process. So the system doesn't statically locate itself somewhere between the two, but both of them are happening. The disorder is happening. So Things are moving randomly. So an ant, when it follows an, a pheromone trail, it might actually deviate from it because there's always some stochasticity in the system. 
And at the same time, the order is there because of this feedback and the disordered numerosity acting. So it's the sort of the tension between the two. It's the tension between the disorder, which is there's always a tendency of the elements of doing something random. And on the other hand, there is the tendency of the whole system to somehow organize itself into an ordered structure. Because of positive feedback, presumably, plays a key role. Correct. And before we go there, diversity. What's the difference between disorder and diversity? You know, we know diversity from, say, a group of people is diverse because you have different ethnicities or different ages or, or whatnot. And the most simple models of complex systems just took identical elements and put them together. And it turns out that when you look closely at very intricate complex systems like the immune system, you don't have just one type of cell or, you know, an ant colony. You don't have just one type of worker. You have different types of workers. So diversity is, if you like, an additional kind of disorder that not every element is exactly identical to every other element, which can be very crucial for the system as a whole to function. That makes sense. Yep. So feedback. And we've heard a lot in the series about feedback. We've, we've heard it from Tyler when he talked about tipping points. Um, and we've heard it obviously from Brian Asher and when he talked about increasing returns, as you've mentioned. So what is feedback? Feedback is reacting to something that happened before. So it can either be something that an element has done before, a location element has been before. It can also be feedback through another element's actions or another element's locations. And in that sense, feedback is the dependence on previous states. So if we turn this around and, and take a system which is not complex, it turns out to be not easy to find, but a, a box filled with a gas we consider it to be not complex. The molecules will move around in that box. It's a, you know, it's a box filled with air, if you like. But it doesn't matter whether you look at this box a year ago or a minute ago, it all looks the same. And there won't be any dependence on the current state of previous states. And that is different for a complex system. There is a dependence on where the system is now, and it depends on previous states. And just before we leave feedback, probably worthwhile just closing off negative feedback at the same time. What does negative feedback do? Negative feedback, it sounds like a, a nuisance, but it's actually a form of stabilization mechanism for the system. It means that a dynamic is being toned down, if you like. So without negative feedback, for example, populations that are growing in size would keep growing. That's what populations like to do. But because they're dependent on the provision of some kind of food source, there will be eventually a slowing down of that increase. And of course, diminishing returns, which we've heard about in economics, is such a, a negative feedback. And then finally, of our four, non-equilibrium. Probably worthwhile starting what we mean by equilibrium first, and then talk about why complex systems exhibit this non-equilibrium. Equilibrium is a, a state where something doesn't change anymore. It stays where it is. And that can be a very static state where really nothing changes. Things just stand still. 
And that by itself excludes it from being a complex system because a complex system is, is constantly changing, which is different, by the way, from what is maybe created by a complex system. So that difference is quite important. The difference between, for example, the honeycomb, which is created by a honeybee hive. The honeycomb is a static system and it's beautifully ordered, but it's the product of a complex system. So the complex system, which would be the honeybee hive in this case, is, is never still, it's never static. Equilibrium, though, can also exist as in a dynamic form. So you can have the same amount of things flowing in and flowing out. Say a, a lake can be in equilibrium, there's the same amount of water coming in as is going out. And this lake is maybe a better example of what non-equilibrium means, because inside of that lake, lots of things are thriving on this water coming in and going out. There are the, obviously the fish that are there, but also algae, bacteria that are changing because they get constant feed in of water and of nutrients that are coming with the water. So the system itself, which is this lake ecosystem, is not in equilibrium because it's constantly changing, forming. Maybe one species is coming in and finding a niche within that ecosystem. And even the geological formations of the lake are never completely static. They're constantly changing. So it's what happens within this, if you think of the complex system as being defined, where water is flowing in and water is flowing out. What is happening in between is what makes the system complex. And I think this is a fascinating aspect of complex systems because so much, if you've come from a very traditional scientific background, so much of it is based on an equilibrium assumption that you can assume equilibrium. And, and we even saw that with Brian Archer's discussion that so much of economics assumed the economy was in equilibrium and, and he was saying it wasn't. I think that's why it's so difficult sometimes for people to get their head around complex systems because the tools we use in, in most normal science, in air quotes, don't really fit this non-equilibrium state that our complex systems often find themselves in. Yeah, I think once you lose the fear of things not being static or deterministic, and instead you see all the the opportunities that come with it and all the amazing phenomena that come out of that and it helps. And I mean, in a nutshell, that's really what complexity science is about, isn't it? It's about giving you the tools and the way of thinking about these systems that are not the traditional tools and, and way of thinking we have in when we think about systems in more traditional science. That's really what complexity science can provide to other fields in science, but also beyond is the way of thinking. And then more and more the tools, especially computational tools, to study these systems. And the beauty, of course, is you can take tools from one system, like an ecosystem or a lake, and apply them to something quite different. But because the systems are similar, they're applicable. That's right. It's the beauty of being a complexity scientist. You get to learn so many different areas of science. So finally, we've talked about our, our four, numerosity, disorder and diversity, feedback and non-equilibrium. Let's talk about the big one, emergence. And, you know, you said there is no conception of complexity or complex systems that does not involve emergence. So what is emergence? Emergence is a concept that really needs to be picked apart because it's so full of expectations. <laughs> emergence is a thing. But emergence is not a single 
thing. Again, it's the process of something coming about through other processes. And we've spoken about these fundamental processes of fundamental features of complex systems. What happens because of these features is what emerges from these features. So emergence, I say it in a nutshell, almost quoting Philip Anderson, who said it very distinctly, which is emergence is in all complex systems, the whole displays behavior that the individual parts cannot. So I say this again, emergence is the whole that is displayed in terms of behavior that the individual parts cannot display on their own. And that can be a lot of different things, but it certainly, it is what makes us wondrous, what makes us want to study these systems. And it makes it not obvious you can't get an ant trail with a single ant, you can't get a colony with a single ant, you can't get increasing returns with a single agent. In a way, it doesn't even make sense to speak about these things for individuals. They only make sense once you put a lot of them together. So fundamentally, we're saying that you get this behavior that's more than the sum of the parts of the agents, but you need enough of the agents and you need feedback, but you still need disorder in there as well. And you need an open system and you put all that together and suddenly this system starts behaving in a much more sophisticated way than you thought before. Yes, that's all well said. I'd like to add that the whole is not just more than the sum of its parts, but it is the whole is the sum of the parts plus the interactions. And the interactions is where we get in the feedback, where we get in the, the non-equilibrium and all that. So that brings you features that only the whole can display and the individuals cannot display. And is it fair to say that the products, which we're going to go on and talk about, the six products, they're a product of emergence, they're a result of emergence. Is that reasonable? Yeah, almost. I'd say it slightly differently. They are the emergent features. So they emerge from these conditions of complexity. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next episode. Thank you very much, Carolina. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 